You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Welcome back to The Beltway Briefing. I'm out of the basement. It's Howard Schweitzer after... uh, Two weeks in in a remote location, an, an undisclosed location. Patrick and Caitlin, um, we have Patrick and Caitlin with me today, and two special guests from our Richmond office. We have Jerry Kilgore, former Attorney General of the State of Virginia. So, uh, having held high ranking uh, office in the, in the state and having run for governor. With the election in Virginia on Tuesday, who better to have on than a guy who's actually run for the office we're talking about and and held high office in the state? And Julia Hammond from our uh, Richmond, Virginia office, former um, head of legislative affairs for Governor Bob McDonald and um, an astute observer of all things uh, Richmond. So we've got the... Election next Tuesday, Jerry and Julia and Patrick and Caitlin. And I guess everybody's looking to this as kind of a bellwether for where's Biden in this era of national nationalization of politics. I guess this is being viewed as a referendum on the state of the Biden administration. Let's talk about whether that actually should be the case. And the, the narrative in Washington this week, and Patrick, you'll have to explain what your party did yesterday in, or didn't in Washington, do. right, or didn't do. Uh, the narrative is, well, we need to pass legislation in Virginia to save Terry McAuliffe's candidacy for governor against Glenn Youngkin, the, the Republican, uh, uh, the Republican um, nominee for, for governor. So, Patrick, let's start there. What happened yesterday when the Democrats released this framework? Where where are we on Build Back Better? Sure. So you had two dynamics, uh, big picture play out that were kind of causing all the activity. You had the president leaving for his overseas trip um, and wanting to have something to talk about, uh, particularly as it relates to climate change for when he gets to Glasgow. Um, And then you have the Virginia race on Tuesday. Terry McAuliffe, uh, in addition to being a former Virginia governor, is like the ultimate party insider. And so he has been telling President Biden and Speaker Pelosi and Leader Schumer for months, you guys got to deliver something positive that I can talk about uh, on the campaign trail. Otherwise, I'm just going to get, you know, sucked up by this whole kind of Washington environment. And so I think yesterday... Congressional leadership thought, okay, if we release this framework, if we have agreement with the moderates in the Senate, President Biden's going to get what he needs to go overseas. And then let's take a shot at seeing if we can kind of force the progressives to accept the compromise, feel good like the uh, commitments had been made that we're moving forward on reconciliation, and then let them pass Biff and try and give McCall something positive to talk about in his final uh, 72 hours. So it was a gamble by the White House and congressional leadership, and it failed. It didn't pay off. They, they didn't have the votes. The progressives didn't relent. They have too many votes in the caucus. 
uh, and they did not want to allow the reconciliation or they didn't want to allow the infrastructure bill to move forward until we're farther along in the reconciliation process. They don't trust Senators Manchin and Cinema. They don't trust that we're really done negotiating. Um, and so ultimately, a vote didn't happen yesterday. I think we'll talk on the a infrastructure little- bill, but they did come out. The Progressive Caucus did come out at the end of the day and say they were okay with the um, uh, 1.75 billion dollar Build Back Better. Right, that framework. was the big framework. That, that's exactly right. That was the big win for just moving forward. And again, you know, if you're kind of looking outside of the daily ups and downs of kind of the process, uh, that was a big deal that progressives have essentially said, we're going to accept this compromise number. Now it's just about kind of dotting the I's and crossing the T's with cinema. But for those who are holding out hope that somehow uh, a, a bill passing in Washington was going to determine the outcome of a statewide race in Virginia, that's not going to happen. And like I said, I think we're going to talk about this more later. I don't think it would have made much of a difference anyway. Um, so, you know, now we're looking into next week uh, getting this finalized, getting this compromise finalized, Manchin and Cinema are going to have to say something that makes the progressives feel like they are fully on board, and I think that will ultimately happen. And then they'll they'll start the process moving forward. But let's be clear: for weeks on this podcast, we've talked about it. I have said I have pointed to the holidays, I have pointed to December, and I have said this is not. There isn't right. some magic. Like this is all going pretty much how most of us who have been doing this a while could have expected it. would. Right. Caitlin, what's the view on the Republican side in Washington? Dems in disarray. That is the view of Republicans. I was uh, with several Republican House chiefs of staff yesterday afternoon at an event and a couple of members and we were still waiting around. We were wondering, you know, it was supposed to be a fly out reception and uh, no one was sure if they were quite flying out because of the vote, no one was sure if they were going back to make votes. And they did go back to vote on a highway surface extension given the deadline hit on the 30, they, they needed to do that before Sunday. Um, but Dems in disarray. Yesterday was a big, you know, there was a lot of hype. There was a lot of media attention. There's also a lot of discussion. And I think, you know, Jerry is, is going to, and Julia will touch on this in Virginia. I think there's a big disconnect here in Washington about what we think America is focused on and what the media thinks America is focused on and whether or not, you know, this big infrastructure bill getting passed would have helped McAuliffe or not. I think there's a big disconnect there. A lot of what where you know what members are hearing is it's more about supply chain issues, inflation, costs, yeah. schools, etc. So yesterday was a bit of a mess. Dem- well, Democrats in disarray. We'll get into that, but I, I think you're right. I think the R's are just sitting back and letting the Democrats beat each other up. And that's what you do when you're in the minority. Yeah, what hundred percent? What else you have? Hundred percent. You go, throw stones and go get early cocktails on a weekday and hope that it all comes crashing down. That's what you do in the minority. They have a role. But yeah, uh, the role. And yeah. To be fair, I will if I compliment the other side, which is my conciliatory nature. Towner, our colleague, and I were talking. They could, they, they did go along with the short-term extension on on highway reauthorization. Of you know, they there's did. yeah, there 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 is a world in which they could have been like, no, we're not doing a short-term fix. And you, if you guys are tying it up into this larger package, you should go past that and move on. But. You know, we got to live to to kind of fight another day on that. Which is well, good. listen, we all know that they don't disagree as much as 
MSNBC and Fox would have us believe at the end of the day. It's just that the path to get there from a messaging point of view and a public point of view is rocky. And, you know, but but they don't they don't necessarily share different views. But the when you're in the minority, like you said, Patrick, you <laughs> let the other side, like they actually are the ones that are held accountable for the decisions that are made. And it doesn't matter which party it is. They all do the same thing. And it's the oldest game in politics. That's what you do. That's what you do. So Jerry and Julia, Jerry, start with you. Does any of this Washington nonsense actually mean anything? So, or down so in Washington, Richmond, doesn't matter. Washington matters in the governor's race, but not for those reasons, not for an infrastructure bill. An infrastructure bill was going to move no one because we're talking about education, public safety, and inflation in the Virginia governor's race. So I dare say that the 18 to 24-year-olds that they need to get out to vote had no idea that an infrastructure bill was even being discussed or what it, what it even had in it uh, to begin with. But, you know, Virginia... Six of the past seven gubernatorial elections have gone to the party opposite of who's in the presidency. And uh, Terry McAuliffe was the only one to break that streak when he ran against uh, King Cuccinelli, who, you know, was having some uh, branding issues of himself uh, during that entire uh, campaign. And still, at the end of the day, it tightened to... Mm -hmm. Terry McAuliffe only by two and a half points, even though the Washington Post was saying a week out he was going to win by uh, 12, 14 points. So uh, that was so southernly gentlemanly, too, how you said branding problems. I love that. It was I'm so the, nice. I'm, I'm the Democrat on the podcast. So he, the guy was nuts. That's the, that was his problem. <laughs> of, of course. <laughs> well, Jerry, Jerry isn't going to say that, but <laughs> that's why but, I had to say it. Yeah. But the, uh, I don't know. The, the Virginia's also gotten more blue. Virginia has gotten more blue. Uh, it, it, the determination on the on the election will be who actually shows up to vote. Uh-huh. I mean, to if we stay, it looks like we could only have a turnout of high thirties, high thirty percent. That does not bode well for. Democrats in Virginia, they need to get it into the high 40s like they did when Northam and they swept the swept the ticket last time. But it doesn't look like it's going into the high 40s. They might get it into the low 40s. But if they do get in the low 40s, then that, you know, it'll be tighter races all around. Uh, but what we're looking at in the polling is where independents breaking. Yeah. And they tend to be breaking towards uh, Yunkin in these final days of the campaign. Uh, if you, I mean, Terry McAuliffe's a known quantity in Virginia. If you don't, if you weren't voting for him going into this, you probably were just waiting on Yunkin to convince you that he's not going to be crazy. He's going to govern in a, in a decent manner and, um, and pitch his education uh, spiel. It's kind of funny that this outsider with really no political experience who's run uh-huh the largest private equity, one of the largest private equity firms in the world, um, that that's, that's the guy. But I guess that's kind of politics today. Well, it, it's just like the Republicans finally did something right in Virginia in their nomination process, and they couldn't have gone to central casting and got a better candidate than this. Not only did he not have a voting record, 
he could self-fund and mm-hmm. be and move to the middle very quickly. So what I think is interesting and consequential about this election is not so much that the referendum on Joe Biden, but the referendum on the last president, which who is basically Terry McAuliffe's trying to run against Donald Trump, right. not Glenn Youngkin. And that's the basis of his campaign. That's what all the, that's what the talking points are that I hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and Julia, what, what do you make of that? Oh, I mean, Tara McAuliffe has to try and tie and it's just not working. Um, anyone who's met Glenn Youngkin and the man has been everywhere, right? He, he left the Carlisle group. He has all the time in the world to campaign and that's what he's been doing between his ability to self-fund so he doesn't spend as much time as Terry McAuliffe does fundraising. And he's able to go to event to event. And these events are huge. I don't know if you've <laughs> seen any of it, but they've been doing comparisons now. You know, they were within 50 miles of one another in Southern Virginia. And Terry McAuliffe couldn't fill my living room. And Youngkin had a thousand plus people standing outside in the cold to hear these rallies. I mean, there's, he just has ap- been absolutely everywhere. And he doesn't come off like Trump. He doesn't sound like Trump. He doesn't yell, curse, pound his fist. He doesn't call names. He is just not Donald Trump. And I think people know that. They they recognize it. Even Democrats recognize it. I think the it. Democrats know it. I was going to say point to Biden's uh, speech uh, with McAuliffe just, just a couple of days ago. Biden said, I'm paraphrasing, but something like, you know, Trump extremism can still come, you know, in a in a nice looking <laughs> guy with a sweater vest. Yeah, that, yeah. that is that is them conceding that it's not working, right? That's it's not. I mean, and then on top of it, during the now, they didn't have that many debates. They had two debates. And of course, there has been a lot of coverage of what was said and done during those debates. But if you looked at the two candidates, only one of them was doing most of the yelling. Only one of them was really interrupting everyone. And that person wasn't Glenn Youngkin. Right. So even in, in sort of outward appearance, the one who's yelling Trump's name seems to kind of come off a bit more Trumpian. And then I assume at some point we're going to talk about the Terry McAuliffe gaffe from the second debate that really has just changed the trajectory um, of this race and catapulted, even in the latest Fox poll, it talked about education, his comments, the reaction, Loudoun County have just changed everything. We should yeah. talk about that for sure. It will, like, I would, but, I would but that, that. Poll, that poll was an outlier. Let's just be clear. I mean, and and remember the source. Consider the source. That poll's an outlier. No, the polls basically show that they're tied. While Fox News is definitely more conservative leaning, the um, Beacon Research and Shaw and Company Research, you have a D firm and an R firm who put it together. They've been together since 2011. So while Fox News is definitely conservative leaning, I I give that polling a little more credit um, towards the, the middle. But if you don't want to take the fi- the numbers, the having Yunkin up, you do look at the their comparison of poll to poll, and education is that thing that's dragging <laughs> people in. Education is so, the issue that's changing independent voters who are breaking for Yunkin at this point. So, Jerry, talk about that. Tell us what happened. And oh, I was I was right there. We hosted that that first debate at Appalachian School of Law. And I, you know, when when McAuliffe was asked the question about parental involvement, I thought he would correct it mm-hmm. during the debate. I thought he would go back, but he doubled down after after the debate and questions. And now he's like 10 times doubled down. Yeah, on, it's 
It it's seemed not, like it was serious. Like yeah. you could tell. And I, I mean, I'm of the view that statewide debates matter so little generally to people that outside of people like us who love politics. But every once in a while, something gets said in one that really impacts the race. You know, we all remember the, you know, uh, Richard Murdoch and his race against Joe Donnelly. Sometimes people say things and it's an ad for the rest of the campaign. And it feels like this might be in that category of where something outside of just political people liking to watch the debates that something may have actually had an impact on the race. What did he actually say? Because people listening to this aren't going to necessarily know that. And, you know, they said, they, go ahead. No, no, you can, Jerry. You were the one who was live for it. No, I mean, when when they were talking about parental involvement in schools and, and critical race theory and things of that nature, uh, Glenn Youngkin, of course, thought parents should be involved and should be at school board meetings uh, talking about their curriculum. And Terry McAuliffe was like, parents should not be involved in the curriculum choices of their children. And he just kept doubling down. They, sh You know, he turned it into... Uh, that it's you know we have a school board and we have a, a school superintendent and they're the ones that should and a board of education they're the ones that should set the curriculum for our school system and you know that might have worked uh, two years ago but now that parents have been home right. for mm -hmm. two years listening to what their kids are being taught I mean they know parents know now what their kids are being taught so a lot of parents have awakened to to sort of question some of the things that are being taught. Well, and then hot on the heels of that, you had an awful incident in Loudoun County um, where there uh, a ninth grade girl um, alleged and the perpetrators have been found guilty that she was raped in the bathroom of her high school. And there's a lot of questions as to how the schools handled it. Did they notify? When did they notify? The student was transferred to another school and sort of until the the dad, the father of the of the young lady, um, showed up at a school board meeting, nobody in Loudoun County seemed to really know what had happened. And then the outcry that they were trying to silence and limit parents, and and it just the the um, democratic response to that, the legislation that allowed it to um, get to the point it was like all of this became this example that um, Youngkin and Republicans could use as to why parents should be involved and why Terry McAuliffe shouldn't be a governor. And I think this one issue has made this race a race. I, I don't think Youngkin had found the issue until this gaffe. It wasn't a gaffe, I guess. It, it's what he believes. <laughs> and the impact it too has had on down ticket races. I mean, we talk about the three statewides, but we also have the entire House of Delegates that's up. And, you know, if you'd asked me this, if we've been talking about this three months ago, would I say, I do, can Republicans take back the House? I'd be like, maybe they can get close, but I don't think so. We have 12 races that are in play and legitimately in play. Two of them right um, in Northern Virginia, not far from one, 80% of the district is in Loudoun County. Um, so it, it's just it, the trickle down effect of Glenn's momentum, this, the gaffe, uh, Democrats not coming out and saying something different about um, parental involvement in schools. Um, and then the Loudoun County incident has parents fired up. Can I spin the, can I spin the context though, just real quick, just to, to, to put uh, uh, just some of this in perspective too. You have a sitting democratic president whose approval ratings are in the tank right now. You have a democratic candidate who, even though he's not an incumbent, it kind of feels like 
incumbency in, in a bad way because he's well known and he was the governor before the last one. You have a challenger who has run a really good campaign. He hasn't really made any mistakes and he has not been saddled with some of the other problems. So you have all of that. Everything appears favorable for the Republicans and and McAuliffe could still win. That's what to me is, is kind of unbelievable with the transition of Virginia, all of those factors, every single thing would, would point to a Republican victory, which we may well see, but McAuliffe might still win despite all of that, which is to me remarkable about how much Virginia has changed uh, just Jerry since you started in politics it's an, it's incredible sure. Julie I'm going to I'm going to ask you to do something that's going to be very difficult but if Terry McAuliffe wins make the case why that might happen why Terry McAuliffe might win I think Terry McAuliffe might win because um he has successfully motivated the base um when and it's it's a gap on the Republican side that he's going to capitalize on is uh, he and President Biden and President Obama did a wonderful job of irritating Donald Trump. And so while it started out small, there are now tweets um, and the possibility that he will at least do a teletown hall, tell a rally for Youngkin in Virginia. And that is I really think that's kind of all it takes. They, they baited him, right? They baited right? him to and get into did, it. It yeah. took all three of them. It took months to happen. But um, I, I do think President Biden's speech uh, the other night, he was in Arlington County, which was also a bit of a risk on behalf of Terry McAuliffe to bring him in. But he did it in a bright blue area to help motivate the base. And he did just enough. And I mean, Jerry, I don't even know what the time frame was, it was like six hours, if that. And then Trump, there's a tweet that he's coming to that. Virginia. Then there's a little discussion back and forth. And then it's going to be a town hall. Um his voice, loud and clear in Virginia, could be all that they need to really motivate the base. Not just motivate the base, but those never-Trumpers. Well, I mean, we're just thrilled that he doesn't have Twitter on it. Or, or he would be all involved. We're all thrilled, Jerry, with that. <laughs> it is, but I don't, is thrilled. But I do see the, the possibility that even if he were to pull it off, that the Republicans in the House of Delegates, that 10-seat that lead that the Dems have will tighten. Um, because there are some other great candidates. And so um, what what he if Terry McAuliffe is to win, what he inherits will feel much like the, the beginning of his term last go round. Right. He's going to have um, it's going to be tight. He's going to have um, more loud Republicans feeling like the, the angst. I just I don't know that he's going to get done what he wants. Um, and then we never know with redistricting. We might have the House run again next year. And then the year after. So um, we could have several years of crazy change happening. So, I mean, the thing I'm always trying to figure out is, is politics truly nationalized or not? And Jerry, what's your view on that? Because it seems like McAuliffe is trying to, the, the D's are trying to nationalize it, but as it relates to Trump, not as it relates to Biden, and you've got like, are we talking about like education is not a it's a national issue, but it's it's not really what we're talking about when we talk about nationalization of politics. So what what what's your view on that? I think for Virginia, it's always been nationalized. I mean, every election, I mean, we're so close to DC. You know, half of Northern Virginia used to work in in DC, so it's always they care only about the 
federal government and what the federal government is doing. And and they vote that way. They vote against the president for the most part uh, in Virginia. So, I mean, we've always been nationalized. I think other states are beginning to see this nationalization and this great divide in our country. I mean, we we all saw it when Trump was elected and it's not gone away. Caitlin. Go ahead. Go ahead, Julie. I was going to say, I, I do think the withdrawal from Afghanistan woke up some Virginians who hadn't been paying as much attention to the election. We're blessed not just with federal um, employees and contractors in Northern Virginia, but military installations throughout the Commonwealth. And then we had Afghan refugees coming into those military installations. So those who would otherwise, they voted in their presidential and then they sit down um, and stay quiet for a little while longer, seem to just stay more engaged. I'm not saying it swayed them one way or the other, but it kept them attached to the discussion so that they were more, um, it was easier for both parties to get to them and for them to absorb the messaging coming in. Caitlin, jump in. Well, I would just first like to say, Howard, I want to push back on on your point about education not being a national issue. AG Merrick Garland was on the Hill this week before two major committees that got wall-to-wall coverage. The DOJ is calling PTA moms domestic terrorists. And I think I'm so glad to have Julia and Jerry on today and to be a little bit more balanced on our podcast because I firmly believe that we in D.C. are fundamentally out of touch with what is happening in the states around the country on education, on crime, on supply chain issues. And I don't think that that's a local Virginia issue. I think that's a national issue. And that's what Americans around are talking about around the kitchen table right now. Not the infrastructure bill, not Build Back Better, not even the existential threat of climate change. It's these kitchen table issues. And I'm just glad to kind of hear that um, from from Jerry and Julia today. Hey, Caitlin, is four is four Republicans and one Democrat balanced in in your world? Is that we're gonna that give we're gonna give you ha- we're gonna give you Howard today? Patrick. Careful, <laughs> careful, 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 <laughs> careful. Um, just because I work for a Republican once That's upon right. a time, I also three, work for a Democrat. Patrick. Three Democrats, uh, three Republicans, an Independent, and a Democrat. Yeah, you're getting closer. Yeah, um, something like that. Caitlin, that hearing, by the way, was awful. Like, DOJ did not call them domestic terrorists. It's that was a bunch of trumped up. Jerry wants to push back. Wait, nope, Jerry. Let's let Jerry push back on that point. Go ahead. We never get to have guests on. Jerry, take it. They they did. His deputy did call parents domestic terrorists. I mean. They needed to look for domestic terrorists. I mean, nobody should be out here committing violence, but you should have the right of free speech in this country to go talk to your school board. I mean, I think they're trying to to uh, chill parents from going to school board meetings. Uh, and demonize PTA well, moms, which right, is a very dangerous right. place to be with suburban women. Well, I don't want to get in the way of a PTA mom. As a suburban mom right here, just... The, the comments, and I know I'm biased when I heard what McAuliffe said, but when other candidates were like, they have no place, or assuming that moms or dads, too, who want to speak up at school board meetings and have a say in what's being taught, or they're uneducated, they don't know what they're talking about. My mother was a superintendent of a school system. My father was a teacher. I don't have to be one to know what a classroom should look like and feel like, and I think that I am entitled to have a say, even if you choose not to follow it. But telling me to, like, sit down and Shut up. It's well, that's, never yeah, effective. It's, it's just dumb. Especially right now when you've got parents. Uh-huh. 
basically <laughs> teaching their kids. Or on the flip side, <laughs> when they say, if you want to say, you should send your kids to private school. Because what does that do to all those families who who can't afford, don't have the ability, whatever, to, to go to private school is just, that isn't yeah. the right response either. No. What we're seeing here, I think, you know, kind of extrapolating from this education conversation, it's the frustration with government overreach. It's a year and a half of pandemic. It's mask mandates. It's yeah. lockdowns. It's vaccine mandates. It's frustration and get government out of my schools, out of my personal life. And I think that's the, the bigger picture here. That's the thread that's kind of threading this all together. Well, I, people don't trust government. I mean, and and by the way, I've been what what I've been telling people is, well, I was stuck down in the basement. Uh, uh, you know, I, I googling away at um, uh, my my health symptoms. I th- the only place I didn't go to try to figure out what this meant and that meant was the government, and that's me, who worked for both parties at a high level in government. During the last crisis, and I don't trust the government. I don't trust the CDC to give me the right advice. I I don't. I didn't. I didn't. I don't trust government to to tell me what to do. I don't think I don't trust them on booster policy. Who does like the messaging? Both parties, both presidencies, uh, and you know has been horrible. And and lacks clarity and doesn't engender trust. And that's, I think, Caitlin, the fundamental issue. I don't think, and I don't, I don't think that's a party, even a party thing. I mean, I think maybe there's more, there's more reliance on government on the left um, and a more, more willingness to accept government playing a role, but I don't think trust in government is high in the country generally. And I think that's one of our major problems. Anyway. Howard, to your question, you asked just about what, uh, and I'd be curious kind of what Jerry and Julie think, just what we can learn from Virginia and what everyone's going to be trying to read into it for trends next year. It's really always entertaining to me to read like East Coast kind of urban liberal media people talk about the suburbs like it's you know like it's a neptune or something like people who live in the suburbs for the most part regardless of where you live in the country they are actually like a lot less political than you would think right that's kind of the whole point and that's why they're they're always so interesting to politicians trying to win races because it's people who just care about their livelihoods and their kids and wanting to have kind of a safe nice place uh, to raise their families. And that's more important to them than anything else. And so I feel like people will be looking to, and and sometimes, by the way, people think that something's going to happen in the suburbs and it goes the other way. We had all these school board elections here last year. We had all these slates of people running who wanted to reopen the schools all across suburban Chicago, Republican-leaning, Democratic-leaning communities, and all of those slates lost. And by, by, you know, by and large, citizens were like, look, maybe not everything was perfect, but this was a once in a lifetime global pandemic. We think the administrators and teachers are trying their best. And that's kind of how people felt. I think people will be looking to next week's election to just find out how ordinary Americans 
are feeling about a whole variety of issues. And that's what I think uh, we can take away from it. There'll be some really interesting crosstabs and things I'm sure that Jerry and Julia can walk us through about Fairfax County and Loudoun County and just how people are feeling, you know, about about the direction of the country. I think that will be instructive as we look to next year. And I think Virginia has always been this canary in the coal mine. I mean, in 2005, mm-hmm. when I lost, uh, 2006 came along, we lost the Senate, the Republican, I mean, we lost George Allen in the Senate, even in Virginia. We lost all these Senate races around the nation, the House. Then 2009 with Bob McDonald, right after Barack Obama had won, uh, was the canary in the coal mine for the Republicans taking back the House and the Senate. And then, and it just goes on and on, you know, when, when, uh, uh, 2017 came around. Uh, they swept it because Trump was in the White House, and that showed you what you were going to get in 2018. So Virginia's sort of the bellwether for what's going to happen in the in the midterms. So Jerry, you ran in 05? correct? So Bush was president. Iraq and and oh. uh, and Iraq War and uh, Katrina hit right at the end, even though we had, had a two-point lead early in that race. Uh, both of those issues hit so right. So what was that like? It was just out of your control. You couldn't do anything. Uh, you know, I, I see what, McC- I know what McAuliffe is feeling right now. When, when, and, 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 and Bush didn't go as low <laughs> as, as Biden has gone. I mean, Bush was in the low 40s. I only needed him to be at 45 to win. And he stayed right around 41. Well, Jerry, we were talking a little bit before, too. So you had that experience of just kind of an unfavorable national environment. Then talk a little about your first statewide race. You uh, were running for attorney general 2001, Republican president, Republican Congress, obviously majority is close. And then September 11th happens. September 11th happened. But, you know, Virginia still elected Democrat governor that year uh, with um, uh, Mark Warner. Yeah, uh, September 11th happened, and that sort of put the focus on the AG's race, public safety, everybody wanted to be secure. And I was the one running the public safety security campaign, and we ended up winning, even though the governor's race went plus five for the Democrats, we won plus 20 down ticket. Wow. And Jerry, when you were, when Bush was in the White House and all that was going on, um, and you were running, were you talking to the administration? Were you trying to get them to, how are you, what was that we like? Were, we were working with the administration constantly with Fallhouse Political, and they would come down, we'd go up. Uh, we worked with them a lot. Uh, Bush even came on that final tour with us uh, the final week, and that was a lot of hand-wringing on the campaign. Do we allow this to happen? And and I, I do I mean, I said, maybe you shouldn't say no to the president, but maybe I should. <laughs> maybe I should have. I, I, I know I did tell, because uh, uh, Charlie Crist was uh, serving with me as AG and running for governor the next year in Florida, and we talked right after my election. I said, whatever you do, if, if things don't improve, you can't have the president campaign for you because it'll just hurt you with independence. And he didn't. If you go back and look at his race, he he never allowed it. <laughs> wow. Amazing. All right. Well, final predictions. Uh what's what's gonna happen? Uh I, give us give us a prediction. I, I just think that uh 
it'll be tight. I think it'll be a long night, but I do think because the independents are breaking now towards uh, Youngkin, I just don't think the assumptions are there that everybody in Northern Virginia is going to vote in the same percentage for the Democrats that they did in 17 and and even in 20 in the presidential race. Youngkin only has to get to to 39 to 42 percent in Fairfax and and Loudoun. Right. I think he'll, I think he'll get there. I think he'll get there easily, and I think he'll eke one out for uh, governor. And I think the House, Julia, Julia can predict the House. Julia, I think so. We have 12 races solidly in play, and if you look where Youngkin currently is um, overperforming, what has happened in the past down in Hampton Roads, um, there are three races. Four, if you go over um, West Little Further, Central Virginia. I think I think we can at least tie it up. I don't know that I'll go so far as to say um, we'll have more, but I think we can win at least five of those seats, five of the 12 seats that are up, um, which will make for an interesting. It's been a while since we've had shared power uh, in the House of Delegates in Virginia. But um, I, I, I think people underestimate uh, suburban voters. I think Patrick was right that they don't necessarily wake up until you give them a reason when they can't get Christmas presents, Halloween costumes. Um, when gas is spiking like lumber did last year, you just and tell moms that they can't go to school. Done. Okay. Well, we shall see. Uh, let's do a postmortem. Uh, we'll see what happens uh, next week. Be very interesting. I'm anticipating if Yunkin wins that there can be a lot of people freaking out in in Washington, Caitlin. Uh, but. Let's see what happens and let's have you guys back on and we'll post more to it and uh, see where we are. It'll be a long night. Yeah. Thanks for joining us and thanks everybody for listening and we'll be back next week. You've been listening to the Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing Podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.